So it is December 27th, 2017, and this probably looks an awful lot to you like a before and after fitness commercial. <laughs> Tonight we've come to the end of our 12th round series. We're pulling out all of the stops. We have pilfered from poems, stolen from stanzas, annexed alliterations, and hijacked our finest homiletics. We intend to make an impression on you tonight. But most importantly, we've sought the face of heaven about our subject matter. It's my high honor this evening, it's even a privilege, to preach this eighth message in a series with my firstborn son, Judah. Can't say enough how excited I am to have the opportunity to do this. It's fitting, though, that we start by recapping some of the things that we've already gone over. So in Pastor Wade's message, Ring Revelations, we had to clinch with the idea that not every enemy has been put underfoot. Wasn't that a good message, church? Yes. You remember it. Have you been thinking over it? Yes. This has been a good series. Amen. In the message, Spiritual Stance, we had to clinch with the concept that Satan has a plan or a scheme for your defeat, death, and destruction. That was awful, wasn't it? The message was great, but the concept that there is an enemy who wants to destroy you is a difficult thing to grasp. In my father's message, Body Shots, we were confronted in the clinch with the painful reality that Satan is often successful in carrying out his plan. He even managed to stop Paul, as detailed in 1 Thessalonians. In Justin Treister's powerful message titled, Granite Chins and Glass Jaws, wasn't that awesome? Yeah. We came face to face in the clinch with the biblical reality that Satan has actual autonomy, that he possesses real power called exousia, uh, and he uses it to harm the saints. And Pastor Matthew slapped you with a Torah piro, this message, <laughs> which he called getting off the ropes. We clinched with the terrible truth recorded in 2 Kings 3 that God's will is not always done. This is due to man's unfaithfulness. Brother Nick Eregina brought us the sixth message titled, Delivering a Punch. Yeah. The clinch in that message made us evaluate Daniel 10 and the reality of warfare in the heavenly realms. It seems that there was a 21-day delay in the transmission of a message that God intended for Daniel to have because of spiritual, spiritual resistance, warfare in the heavenlies. That's certainly sobering, isn't it? Yeah. It is. And Pastor Wade, the homiletic blades message, <laughs> titled Stealing the Round, during this message we clinched with the clear biblical record that sometimes the enemy is more dedicated to their desired outcome than the people of God. Mm. Each of these messages made us focus on the clinch more than any of us would like. We had to look at the enemy's capabilities. In every message we then utilized the law, the prophets, the writings to turn our, on our enemies. Finally, every message in the series focused on mounting a successful offensive against our adversary. Tonight's message is titled, The Right Hand. Amen. I don't mind telling you in advance that we are through with the clinch. We have already begun. We are going to make our turn, and you are about to participate in a sudden, overwhelming, ultimately devastating, all-out offensive on our enemy. 
Victory is certain, and the process has already begun. Where does the process begin? It's in the Word of God. Let's go to 2 Corinthians 1 and verse 18. Somebody yell there when you were there. Amen. She's fast. (laughs) But as surely as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no. But in him it has always been yes. For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts As a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Speaking of that word of God, just run through a few things about the Bible. So the Bible has been read by more people and published in more languages than any other book in history. The United Bible Societies in 1997 reports show that 71.5 million Bibles and books of the Bible were distributed around the world. Over 8,000 copies per hour and about 200,000 copies every day and night have been wow. produced. And yet it's never been proven factually inaccurate. It was written on a material that perishes, yet it has more manuscript evidence than any 10 pieces of classical literature combined. There is in existence today over 5,000 copies of the Greek, Greek New Testament from that time. Altogether, there is in existence 24,000 manuscript copies that contained portions of the New Testament from that era. No other document in antiquity even begins to approach these kind of numbers. To give you a comparison, Homer wrote the Iliad, and it's second on the list of ancient documents, and it only has 643 manuscripts. It's quite the difference. The Word of God stands alone in ancient literature. It has no equal. It was written over a 1,500-year period, a span by 40 authors from every walk of life. We have kings, we have peasants, we have philosophers, we have fishermen, poets, statesmen, scholars. Moses was a political leader, trained in Egyptian universities. We have Peter, a fisherman, Amos, a herdsman, Joshua, a military general, Luke, a doctor, Daniel, a prime minister, Solomon, a king, Matthew, a tax collector, and Paul, a Jewish rabbi and lawyer. And with all of those men, from all those different walks of life, there's a scarlet... uh, cord that runs through the entire text. In fact, the God of the Bible never failed to keep a promise to any of those men that were written down on all of those continents in each of the books by all of the different occupations. The Word of God is superstar standout. Let's go to Psalm 19. I want to begin in the seventh verse and see if we can pick up a little bit of the beauty of Psalm 19. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The statutes of the Lord are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The ordinances of the Lord are sure and altogether righteous. 
Church, this has been an amazing series. You should remember some of these things that we're going to go over. We learned, open our eyes, that we're going to see clearly. We widen our stance. We've taken the time to raise our hands eye high. Can I see some eye high hands in the room tonight? Come on now. You ready for a fight? We took the center of the ring. We countered to the head. We practiced ring praise. We pressed our purpose. We listened to our corner, set our gaze, and we wrapped our hands in the word of God. We planted our feet. We cut off our opponent. And we leveled persistent and deliberate punching. We landed a jab. We unloaded an uppercut and we hit the enemy with a hook. We advanced our attack. We let ourselves go and we kept Christ's composure through our godly convictions. So now it's time to set down your pins for a minute. To look up here to make eye contact. Because this is about to get victorious in a whole different way. Our offensive begins with picking up our sword. Are you ready to go on the offensive? Yes. Then let's pick up our sword tonight. This is not a game. Your opponent has already been disqualified. The ring was only an analogy. This arena is actual life. We're going to be speaking about the battle that you're going to see on a day-to-day basis. There is no point system, no scorecard, or standing count. Your enemy is spiritually and physically lethal. And he must be put down permanently. Amen. Ephesians 6 begins the process of telling us how to do that. And in the 17th verse, he calls the word of God a sword. Not a book. Not wisdom literature. He refers to the word of God with a weapons terminology. In 1 John 3, 8, he says the reason that the son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. We're going to pick up a sword like the Son of God and we're going to destroy the devil's work. Amen. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? We can only do that if we pick up the Word of God that is a sword. Amen. It is the most offensive weapon in a Roman soldier's artillery. And yet, it's still the most offensive weapon in the Christian's armory. It is the weapon of choice for the man of God. I want you to begin to think about the exploits of the Word of God as we relay them to you. Do you want to hear about the Word of God tonight? Yes. In Genesis, he's the crusher of the serpent's head. In Exodus, he's the conqueror of the gods of Egypt. In Leviticus, he's the culmination, atonement, and the expiation of sin. In Numbers, he's the recompense to Korah's rebellion. In Deuteronomy, the revealed prophet Moses spoke of. In Joshua, he is the ruler and the captain of the Lord's host. In Judges, he's Barak's war cry. In Ruth, he's Boaz's boldness. In 1 Samuel, he's the bravery that bested giants with boys. (laughs) In 2 Samuel, he's the deity behind David's defeat of Dagon's puppets. In 1 King, he is the devastation that befell Jezebel's prophets. In 2 Kings, he's the demolisher of the deplorables in Elijah's fire. In 1 Chronicles, he's the ark that can fit into a tent. In 2 Chronicles, he's the glory that can fill the temple. In Ezra, he's the God who could resurrect all of it again. When you reach Nehemiah, you find him the restorer of a nation. In Esther, he's the preservation of the people. In Job, he's the arbitrator of the Almighty. 
In Psalms, he's the arm that can bend the bow of bronze. In Proverbs, he's the advisor that teaches us victory. In Ecclesiastes, he's the administrator of man's duty in a heavenly war. In Song of Songs, my personal favorite book, his love is stronger than the grave. In Isaiah, his wrath cannot be stopped. In Jeremiah, he is the war club who shatters the nations. In Lamentations, he's the renewal of hope. In Ezekiel, he's the revival of dry bones. In Daniel, he's the rock that envelops the earth. In Hosea, he's the passion of the jealous husband. In Joel, he's the power of the Holy Spirit. In Amos, he's the possessor of David's tent. In Obadiah, he's the one who rewards deeds, whether good or bad. In Jonah, he's the resurrected one. In Micah, he's the reigning king in Israel. In Nahum, he's the avenger. In Habakkuk, he is the apex warrior. In Zephaniah, he's the all-consuming anger against ancient enemies. In Haggai, he is the shaker of nations. In Zechariah, the slayer of the wicked. And in Malachi, the son of righteousness. Oh, let us move into the Brit Hadashah. He is the victorious king of the Jews in Matthew. He is the successful servant of the Lord in Mark. He is the son of man in Luke. He is the son of God in John. He is the ascended Lord in Acts. He is the believer's right standing in Romans. He is their sanctification in 1 Corinthians. But he's their sufficiency in 2 Corinthians. He's their freedom in Galatians. He is the exalted head of the church in Ephesians. He is the Christian strength in Philippians. He's the fullness of the deity in Colossians. He's the believer's comfort in 1 Thessalonians. He's their glory in 2 Thessalonians. He's the Christian's preservation in 1 Timothy. He's their rewarder in 2 Timothy. He's their blessed hope in Titus. He's their great substitute in Philemon. He's our high priest in Hebrews. He's the giver of wisdom in James. He's the rock in 1 Peter. He is our precious promise in 2 Peter. He is the life in 1 John. He's the truth in 2 John. <laughs> he is the way in 3 John. Jude portrays him as our advocate. Revelation shows him as a king of kings and the Lord of lords. Somebody say amen. Saints, you are at war and you must pick up your sword that is the word of God for at least four reasons. In Acts 12, 24, we find this verse. But the word of God continued to increase and spread. See, the word of God is a sword that sizes itself to match our opponent. It is delicate enough to perform surgery on my little Abby's heart, but it is tough enough to take the head off of the satanic beast that is Islam. In Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is living and active. It is sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even dividing soul and spirit. Joints and marrow, it judges the thoughts and the attitude of the heart. The word of God is better than a sword. It cuts things that a sword cannot cut. The word of God is capable of putting sin to death in the room. The word of God is capable of beating back your enemies in a way that a physical weapon could not. The word of God is filled with power. But it's a supernatural kind of power that rises to meet the occasion. Amen. I've broken many knives in my life. I'm a bit of a rough individual. Ask my wife about how many phones I've been through, or a baj about how many cars. <laughs> I have never been able to break the word of God, though. My best attempts to wield it with some holy savagery has not even put a dent in it. Amen. In 1 Peter 1, 23, it says, For you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. The Word of God is alive and enduring. It never gets dull. 
Friends, I have failed. I have relatives that have abandoned. I've seen disappointment that comes from leaning on people. But the Word of God has endured for all times and all seasons. It never gets dull. It never fades. It never fails. In Revelation 19, the 13th verse, the Word of God is described like this. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding him on white horses dressed in fine linen, white and clean. The Word of God is accompanied by an army in this passage. When you picture the Word of God... Do you picture a lifeless book? When you picture Christ, do you picture a child in a manger? Because the Word of God and the Christ that we serve is one that has the power and the backing of an army behind it. Amen. Jesus said in Matthew twenty-six fifty-three that he had more than 12 legions at his disposal. The Word is a sword that comes with its own army. Come on now. Our second offensive point is recognize your station. A sword in the hand is an awesome even intimidating thing, unless the man who is wielding it doesn't think he's worthy of it or has no idea how to use it. In Christ, we have to recognize our station. What are we going to do? Recognize our station. Man. With that in mind, John 3, 3 gives us some insight. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth. No one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. Mm. This phrase has been repeated by those who don't understand it just long enough to obscure its meaning from those who should. Being born again or being born a second time would produce the same tragic results as your first birth, death. If you were born from the same place or in the same way, it would yield the exact same result. The Greek words indicate something more significant than simply being born a second time. The Strong's number is 509. The Greek word is anothen. Here it's translated again because of tradition. But in most cases in the Bible, it's translated from above. See, we've been born again, but more accurately, we have been born from a higher place. We've been born from above. Church, we're not going to be the kind of people who go through a formality, who want to look as if our life has changed. We're going to be the kind of people who are born from above, right? Amen. Something of the heavenlies. We're not going to settle for church tradition. We're not going to settle for praying prayers that don't change lives. We're going after the kingdom and something that is new birth, that is true, that is from the heavenlies, right? Amen. So you, like Moses, are no ordinary child. You have been spiritually sired from high places. Your father is God and your brother is the firstborn of all creation. Amen. Your father owns the company. And a renegade, mid-level manager is trying to molest the heir to the whole business. Come on now. What do you think is going to happen to that molesting mid-level manager when the father comes to deal with him? Judah and I are fathers. What do you think we would do if somebody tried to harm Titus or harm Abby? Our king is better than us in every way. We are but poor reflections of him. Man, I wish I could tell you a little bit about our king. You know, I think I want to tell them about him. That LCM, do you want to hear about our king? Yes! Do you want to hear about him tonight? Yes! 
He is the ethnic king of the Jews. He is the national king of Israel, the king of all men for all of the ages, the king of heaven, the king of glory, the king of kings, and the Lord of lords. He is a prophet before Moses, a priest after Melchizedek, a champion like Joshua, an offering in the place of Isaac, a king in the line of David, a wise counselor above Solomon, a beloved, rejected, exalted son like Joseph. And yet he is far more. The heavens declare his glory, and the firmament shows his handiwork. He who is, who was, and who always will be, the first and the last. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the Alpha and the Tall, the A and the Z. He is the first fruits of those that sleep. Come on. He is the yod heh vav heh He is the Logos to Theos, the I am that I am, the voice that was burning in the bush, the Savior of Israel's salvation, the Captain of the Lord's host. He is the conqueror of Jericho. Amen. He is ever-present. He is enduring strong. He is entirely sincere. He is eternally steadfast. He is immortally graceful. He is empowerfully powerful. He is impartially merciful. In Him dwells the fullness of the Godhead in bodily form. He is the very God of very gods. He is our kinsman redeemer. He is our avenger of blood. He is our city of refuge, our performing high priest, our personal prophet, and our reigning king. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He is the highest personality in philosophy. He is the fundamental doctrine of theology. He is the supreme problem in higher criticism. He is the miracle of the ages, the superlative of everything that is good. Come on, we are beneficiaries of his love letter. It was written in blood on a wooden cross, erected in Judea 2,000 years ago. He was crucified on a cross, but he made the hill that it stood on. Come on. In him were all things made that were made. Without him was not anything made that was not made. He was born of a woman. So that we could be born of God. He was humbled himself. So that we could be made co-heirs. He became a servant. So that we could become his friends. He suffered rejection. So that we could freely receive all things. He gave himself. So that we could bless us in every way. He is available to the tempted. He blesses the young. He cleanses the lepers. Defends the feeble. He delivers the captives. Discharges the debtors. Forgives the sinners. Franchises the meek. Guards the besieged. Heals the sick. Provides strength to the weak. Rewards the diligent. Serves the unfortunate. Sympathizes and he saves. Come on now. His offices are manifold. His reign is righteous. His promises are sure. His good limitless his light is matchless his grace is sufficient his love never changes his mercy is everlasting his word is enough his yoke is easy his burden is light he is indescribable he is incomprehensible he is irresistible he is invincible the heavens cannot contain him man cannot explain him the pharisees can't stand him and learn that they couldn't stop him Pilate couldn't find fault with him the witnesses couldn't agree against him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. The grave couldn't hold him. He has always been. And he always will be. He has no predecessor. And he will have no successor. He can't be impeached. And he isn't going to resign. His name is above every name. Come on, that at the name of Yeshua, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. His is the kingdom. His is the power and the glory forever 
and ever. Amen. Come on, somebody. That's our king we're talking about. You were born from a higher station. There is none like him. That's our father we're discussing. James 1.9 tells us clearly, the brother in humble circumstances ought to take pride in his high position. See, the Word of God tells you to take pride in your heavenly position. You're supposed to be proud that you were born from above. You're not ordinary anymore. Look at your neighbor say, I'm not ordinary. Knowing that you're a son of the Most High. Knowing that Luke 18.8 says he will bring justice to his little ones. This ought to embolden you on your offensive in exponential ways. Amen. Ephesians 2.6 tells us, And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. You are considered to be seated with Christ right now. <clears throat> Say it with me. Right now. Right now. When am I seated with Christ? Right now. That is your position. Right now. Knowing you are seated with Christ should make you bold like Micah. In Micah 3.8 he says, I am filled with power to declare to Jacob his transgressions, to Israel his sins. He had a difficult task before him. He was in a war and he knew it. But he also knew where he was seated. And it gave the man a supernatural boldness and power. This ought to embolden you in your offensive in some extraordinary ways as we continue. Come on now. Colossians 2.9 says, For in Christ all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form. And you have been given fullness in Christ, who is the head over every power and authority. You are in Christ, and Christ is the highest of all powers and authorities. Is that a high station? Yes. Is that a high calling? Yes. Knowing that you are in Christ and that his power is matchless in the spiritual realm, it ought to inspire holy boldness to the point of spiritual brutality. You have the power to inflict damage on your enemy. All you have to have is the will to do so. Our third offensive point tonight is taking plunder from the fierce. We're going to pick up in Isaiah 49, 24 through 25. It's kind of personal to us. <laughs> Can plunder be taken from warriors or captives rescued from the fierce? But this is what the Lord says. Yes, captives will be taken from warriors and plunders retrieved from the fierce. I will contend with those who contend with you and your children. I will save. Amen. Look at the spirit of this passage. We're not in a ring that the enemy has showed up for a contest. We are taking the fight to him at the time of our choosing in his own backyard. We've spoken about many different types of clinches throughout this series. And each one has been good, effective, and useful. But there is another kind of clinch that is available to the Christian. And it's not defensive. I'm not waiting to be shot. I'm walking up to the man that I know I'm in a fight with. I'm taking hold of him, turning him where I want him to go. So that I might deal damage to the enemy. Amen. What we're talking about tonight is grabbing hold of the enemies of God. Seizing that plunder. Seizing lost souls. Seizing the things that God has laid up in advance for you to accomplish. Amen. We are way beyond defense now. We are pressing our purpose to the point of liberating souls that are behind enemy lines. Come on. The enemy is fierce. But God has fashioned me from a substance of Christ. And I am dominant where I stand now in Him. Amen. 
Somebody say behind enemy lines. In Exodus 15 too, that's exactly what our father does. The Lord is my strength and my song. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. The Lord is a warrior. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his army he has hurled into the sea. The best of Pharaoh's officers are drowned in the Red Sea. You know, this passage should really be seen in the light of Hosea 11 or Matthew 2. It is a righteous father rescuing his son from the clutches of fierce warriors of Egypt. You know, every true son wants to be like his father. You should read Psalm 58 sometime. It's an interesting passage. (laughs) Who in the room likes to get a pedicure? Any ladies, do you like to get a pedicure? I know some of you men do, but I'm not calling you out tonight for your own safety. This is LCM. Men don't get pedicures. Although there is one that my father will give me at the end of days. Go read Psalm 58 and learn a little bit about the character of our God. You get a foot bath, all right. My father has been taking captives from the fierce my whole life. Mm. I have been raised to do what he does. In the same sentiment as Peter, I have no other aspirations in life. Where else would I go? What would I do? Mm. This is a generational fight. My son will be like a warrior that take captives from the fierce. Amen. We're on the offense through the generations, and we will wear out our enemy by persistently taking the fight to his territory and claiming it for our king. Amen. Are we going to take the fight to his territory? Yes. Are we going to go behind enemy lines? Yes. We are going to take plunder from the fierce. 1 Samuel 21.9 The priest replied, The sword of Goliath the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, is here. It is wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you want it, take it. There is no sword here but that one. David said, There is none like it. Give it to me. So the context for this passage is David is on the run from Saul. He's disadvantaged in every natural way that you could think. His home, his people have rejected him. And he is fleeing without a sword, without food, without any provisions, trying to survive. And you know what he does? He runs to the house of God. Amen. You know what he finds in the house of God? A sword. Yeah. Are you going to pick up your sword tonight, saints? Yeah. Are you going to pick it up? What are you going to pick up? That is the word of God. That sword that he found, that it was in that temple. That sword was given to him a long time ago. Back when David was a shepherd boy, he struck down a giant. Yeah. And immediately after that, he picked up that sword and he cut the giant's head off and he carried it around for a little while. He had a new trophy. What we're going to do tonight is remind ourselves of the victories that God has already given us and are an ornament on our God's wall. Pick it back up and go to work on the next giant. Come on. As we approach 2018, we intend to carry that giant's head up to the next giant's feet and drop it there. That's right. We're not waiting anymore for us to get struck and then retaliating. We have the sword of God in our hands. We have the dead bodies of enemies behind us. And we are going after this next year's with the same kind of attitude that you read in Isaiah 49. Amen. In our offensive to take captives from the fierce, we will take the very weapons that our enemy once possessed from them, turn them to the glory of God so that they are used in the offense against the devil. Now we're moving at a frightening pace. So I want to make sure you understood what we just said. 
We're talking about taking Saul Paulus of Tarsus, who was once in the hands of the enemy and cutting him from the body of the beast so that he can be a war club in the hand of our God. We're talking about going behind enemy lines, pressing the offensive, taking someone who is a captive and making him a liberator for the armies of God. We will take what the enemy has held captive and turn it into a liberating force. Friends, we're going to see Muslims Call on the name of Jesus and begin to preach the name of Jesus. Speaking of the power of the word of God, the reason we use that particular scripture is because in Nikki Regina's last sermon, he challenged us to bring up a turn scripture. The very first time that I felt the power of God moving through me in my life in a way that turned my heart as I was speaking was this passage. The context of this reminds me very much of Benaniah who took the Egyptian's own spear from him and struck him down with it. Come on. That is what we're doing here tonight. We're going to take those things that he's been striking us with and turn his own weapon against him. Want to make sure you understand the technological advantage that we have. In 1 Samuel 21, David took the best sword that was available to him. We have a sword that David didn't have access to. It was still being formed. In fact, it's standing right here. I'm holding it in my right hand. It's the sword that is the word of God. It's better than the sword of Goliath. Not only am I handing it, holding it in my right hand, it's holding me in its right hand. What we need to do at this point is move to our fourth offensive point. Are you still with us tonight? In our fourth offensive point, we're going to call on the right hand of God. Do you want to hear a little bit about that right hand of God? Let's go to Isaiah 59, 15. Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes a prey. The Lord Mm. looked and was displeased that there was no justice. He saw that there was no one. He was appalled that there was no one to intervene, so his own arm worked salvation for him, and his own righteousness sustained him. He put on righteousness as his breastplate, and the helmet of salvation on his head. He put on the garments of vengeance and wrapped himself in zeal as in a cloak. According to what they have done, so will he repay. Wrath to his enemies, retribution to his foes. He will repay the islands their due. From the west, men will fear the name of the Lord. From the rising of the sun, they will revere his glory. For he will come like a pent-up flood that the breath of the Lord drives along. The Redeemer will come to Zion, to those in Jacob who repent of their sins, declares the Lord. As for me, this is my covenant with them, says the Lord. My spirit who is on you and my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time on and forever. I want to tell you a secret. We began with 1 Samuel 21 a few minutes ago because it's the first time I heard my son preach in a foreign nation. The Lord told him about Goliath's sword and he began dealing with that. Here, we're finishing with the ideas in Isaiah 59 because in that same foreign nation, the Lord spoke to me and he said, I'm making a covenant with you. And he took me straight to this scripture. And when I shared it with Anna in Israel, he went and got out a leather-bound book that goes back seven generations to the first Indian Christian in their family. And it was the verse that God had given that first man 
And they had now made it seven generations. I intend to win at every turn. We are winning. And yet, did you hear the first part of this verse? In verse 15, he said, Truth is nowhere to be found, and whoever shuns evil becomes prey. I don't want to be prey, do you? No. And yet it happens. Whoever shuns evil becomes prey. The reality on the ground is that many times after you've done all that you can do offensively, it's just not enough. It's a hard truth. The saints don't win every battle. We've been clinching with that all month. In 2 Kings 3, we see it. We see it in 1 Thessalonians. You see that they gave their all and it wasn't enough. It's in those moments that verse 16 comes into play. So his own arm worked salvation for him. It's precisely when we've done everything to stand and it's not enough that the ultimate sovereignty of God comes to intervene in the situation. This is useful in turning a situation around. Our king will show up on the scene like the raging waters of a pent-up flood. This passion... This passage envisions a passionate God who is stronger than a force of nature. A warrior God in full battle dress who is coming to rescue those who are in covenant with Him. The reason that verse 21 is so precious to us is because we want to win. Yeah, We want to win at all costs. A battle is not won in a single generation. Spiritual warfare it doesn't take place over an hour. A true offensive is something that must carry through the generations. That's true. It's not about a family dynasty. It's not about a special church building that ends up being a family gravestone. It is about a kingdom that advances through the generations. The reason verse 21 is that strength for us is because God spoke it to us on that day. And we are holding on to it as a covenant. He says to us, my spirit who is on you. And my words that I put in your mouth will not depart from your mouth or from the mouths of your children or from the mouths of their descendants from this time and forever. Come on, is that a word that you need to grab hold of? Do you want that for your children and your children's children? Then you better fight for it, saints. It's yours. This is a promise of victory to us tonight. That if we pick up our swords, we recognize our station, dare to take captives from the fierce, then we can call on his right hand. And he can do what we cannot. Oh, come on. Isn't that good news? Whatever you can't accomplish, he shows up on the scene to accomplish. Because as the prophecy said before we started tonight, the captain of the Lord's host is here on behalf of the Lord. If you are with him, then he is with you. That's the point. Exodus 15, 6 drives this home in such a special way. Well, Isaiah 59 talks about the arm of the Lord. Exodus 15.6 says, Your right hand, O Lord, was majestic in power. Somebody say majestic. Majestic. In power. In power. Your right hand, O Lord, shattered the enemy. In the greatness of your majesty, you threw down those who opposed you. You unleashed your burning anger and it consumed them like stubble. While this is not a boxing match, it is life. Did you catch that phrase, his right hand, specifically his right hand? The language of this is like a heavyweight champion. It's not just the arm of God, it is specifically his right hand. 
Our God has a devastating right hand. Power is pent up in it. His right hand shatters those who oppose his will. There is nothing in the heavens and certainly not on the earth that can match the awesome power of our God's right hand. As a son, I can remember very few times when I saw my father truly enraged. It was because someone was mishandling me. It's an interesting thing. You really don't know what it means to pray for those who persecute you until you understand who your father is. I know what it was like to be a knucklehead like that one who would mess up things on a regular basis and come totally dependent upon my father. And on multiple occasions, I would have done something that, you know, is probably a mild inconvenience. But somebody was losing their temper. And they were mistreating me because I was by myself. There was no one there. All they could see was me. I tell you that the enemy is, he's a bully. He is looking for someone who is by themselves and doesn't have any help. But what that man who was mistreating me didn't know was that when my father heard about it, the repayment that he would receive was far greater than anything he could deal to me. And I actually found myself intervening and entreating mercy on that man's behalf because I knew what my father would do to him when he got to him. Our God is not any different. When you find that he is truly enraged in the Bible, it's because somebody is mistreating his son. That's true. Can you imagine what God is going to do with his enemies that have mishandled you? Verse 7 says he will unleash his burning anger. Come on. Not anger, his burning anger. Burning. When you see God in a rage, it's because somebody was mishandling you. And he will consume them like stubble. Oh, church, we have got to call on God's right hand. Yes. He will accomplish what you're straining for but falling short. He never falls short of his goal. We have got to call on the right hand of God. Come on, we got to call on his right hand. What are we going to do? Call. In Psalm 44, 1 through 7, he says, We have heard with our ears, O God. Our fathers have told us. Say that with me. Our fathers have Have told told us. us. Maybe your daddy didn't. But you better not let this ball drop in your generation. Our fathers have told us what you did in their days, in the days long ago. With your hand you drove out the nations and planted our fathers. You crushed the peoples and made our fathers flourish. It was not by their sword that they won the land, nor did their arm bring them victory. It was your right hand, your arm, the light of your face, for you loved them. We're dealing with a father who loves his children and he's more than, uh, more than willing to unleash the right hand on their behalf. You are my king and my God who decrees victories for Jacob. Through you, we push back our enemies. Through your name, we trample our foes. I do not trust in my bow. My sword does not bring me victory. But you give us victory over our enemies. You put our adversaries to... You put our adversaries to... See, the right hand of God is the game changer. He will put the enemies to... And the psalmist said, their fathers had told them. Wow. I have a father who told me of the power of God's right hand. I will not fail to demonstrate the same to my sons. I have one that's back in children's church, another that could be born 
the next two, three days, next two, couple minutes. weeks, I don't know. Our offensive is going far beyond the 12th round. This has been a wonderful month, but we're speaking about a generational ministry here that has got to go further than 12 generations. Come we on. are going to win this thing, and we're going to push and push and push until we accomplish it. Not 12 rounds, 12 generations. Amen. Not 12 rounds, 12 generations. Amen. Oh, come on, say it with me, church. As long as it takes. 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 See, the church of the living God can't be beaten because all we have to do is endure. Make it our all to stand in His majestic power until that right hand comes to level the playing field. <laughs> We're going to endure as long as it takes. Say it with me. As long as it takes. I haven't won every round, but I also haven't left the field of battle. As long as it takes. All you have to endure all you have to do is endure until your father shows up. I will call on the right hand of God for the victory that is in his hand and he hears me. I assure you that right hand is coming. It is. In that moment of desperation where you're standing as long as it takes, do not let the enemy get in and cause you to despair. That right hand is coming. Amen. Rather than thinking about the Stevens for a moment, let's think about Stephen the martyr in Acts 7. Come on. When he's in the battle of his life, literally, who was standing at the right hand of God? Mighty King Jesus is the right hand of God, and you are his. He wasn't standing to get a better view. He was standing there next to Stephen because at any minute, he may have intervened, dashing his adversaries to pieces like pottery. Oh, I don't think you heard that. He wasn't standing up because he couldn't see over the angels on the front row. He was standing up like a concerned father, coiled like a spring, ready to let the right hand go. Are you laboring under the belief tonight that Christians are powerless, that we are weak, that we have nothing at our disposal? We read Micah 3.8 earlier. What are you filled with? Power. The right hand of God is your power. It is at your disposal. It is at your right side, like a father watching a son in a boxing match, waiting for the opportunity to help him. He knows that your enemy is bigger than you. He knows that he is stronger than you. But he is standing there, ready for victory. And when we choose to lay down our life like Stephen, full of grace, it's because we understand the greater glory that is coming, and it is worth doing for our king. Yeah. Yeah. The right hand of God is an awesome thing. Let me quote Jesus again. Do you not think that I cannot call on my father at once and have more than 12 legions at my disposal? Do you think that this was just a joke? You are born of God into Christ. So what is at your disposal, church? The right hand of God. The right hand of God that is at your disposal is not a puny thing. It is the power of God that is waiting to turn the tables in the battles you and your family are engaged in tonight. Amen. You know what Jesus and Stephen both had in common? They had power available to them. But they were so full of grace that Stephen said, Father, forgive them. Jesus, I see you're standing. Jesus, I see you're ready to act. But I, like you, Lord, say, forgive them. We forgive men. But we can practice a holy savagery on the demonic realm that is controlling the men. We don't have to forgive 
the fallen angelic realm. See, Jesus had more than 12 legions at his disposal, ready to go at any moment, like calling on the right hand. But Jesus didn't have a desire to wipe out the human race. He had a desire to save the human race. We're gentle towards men. We love human beings. But we don't have to be gentle towards their puppet masters. We call on the right hand of God and He will break them to pieces like pottery. In fact, Jesus said something else to these men. In Matthew 26, 64, He said, Yes, it is as you say. Which begs the question, what came before that? Is it true that you're a king? Yes, it is as you say, Jesus replied. But I tell all of you, in the future you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the Mighty One and coming on the clouds of heaven. Listen, during that temporary moment where it feels like you're suffering defeat, do you know what they're getting? Mercy. Because when Jesus, the right hand of God, shows up, the battle is over. This is not time of your beating. It's time of their chance for changing. We need to think through this, saints. God allowing us to suffer is allowing them time to change their minds. When the right hand shows up, it's over. Church, the Lord will often get in way above your head. Have you found that to be true? He loves to see David take on Goliath. He loves to see Gideon take on his adversaries. And he loves to see you take on Satan himself. It's important that you know that defeats are not defeats. They're temporary setbacks that mean mercy for your adversaries. It's a chance for them to change their mind. How long can you endure? How long will you fight? As long as it takes, Justin. As long as it takes. How long? As long as it takes. If we stay in the battle and we stay on the offensive, we will see the Son of Man coming as the right hand of God. We will see God in His ultimate sovereignty. And that means you are ultimately victorious. Amen? What are you? Victorious. Do you want to see His victory? Yes. Not somebody else. Not on a TV program. Not hear about it. Do you want to see His victory? Then tonight we have to go headlong into that battle. We have to go headlong into that offensive. It's time to be white hot. It's time to go after the enemy, depending upon that right hand and putting ourselves in a situation where we need God to come through. We're done playing it safe. We're done playing defense in the ring. We're done holding our ground. We are going after him now. See, when you go behind enemy lines to take plunder, from the fierce. When you go behind enemy lines to steal back captives, you are going to be outnumbered. You're going to be in way above your head. And God will be appalled that there is no one there to help you. And he will rouse the power of his right arm. And he will come in like a pent up flood that is driven by the very spirit of God along the waters. And the enemy will go down. You might need to get in above your head so that your older brother comes to your rescue. I want to read you something with my son. Is that okay? We're standing here tonight as a generational ministry. There's going to be many generations of Stevens that preach the gospel, as there will be Sutherlands and Piros. 
There'll be many generations of Erezinas that preach the gospel. There'll be many generations of Triesters that preach the gospel. The Resoras are just beginning. I'm wearing my father's boots and I had to borrow them from my son today. Some things just get passed down. That's the way that it works. I want to pass something down to you. Are you ready? Yes. I'm suggesting this is a creed for you. In fact, the few poems that we've borrowed from this evening, the stanzas that we have adapted for our purposes, we're also uploading so that you can have them at home and you'll find this online this evening. I am LCM from the fraternal and eternal order of the DCD. The die has been cast. I have stepped over the line. The decision has been made. I am on the offensive for Jesus Christ. Amen. I won't look back, let up, slow down, back away, or be still. My losses are redeemed. My present is to make war, and my victory is secure. I am finished and done with low living. Sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colorless dreams, chintzy giving, and dwarfed goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits, or popularity. I now live by presence, lean by faith, love by patience, lift by prayer, and labor by power unto the ultimate sovereignty of God. My pace is set. My gate is fast. My goal is heaven. My road is narrow. My way is rough. My companions few. My guide reliable. My mission paramount. I cannot be bought, compromised, deterred, lured away, turned back, deluded, or delayed. I will not flinch in the fact of sacrifice, hesitate in the presence of adversity, negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity, or meander in the maze of mediocrity. I am on the war path for the cause of Christ. I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and proclaim until all are empowered. And when my time is up... He will have no problem recognizing me. I am LCM from the fraternal and eternal order of the DCD. I am not ashamed to fight for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Saints, we've come to the place that is closing. And that means that it's time to reflect on the month. After one month and eight sermons on the full-time reality of vicious warfare, we hope that you recognize there are no days off. There can be no treaty. The enemy will only accept your surrender as a prelude to execution. Which begs the question, have you been taking days off? Because you need to repent. What kind of soldier sleeps while his buddies are at war? Have you been negotiating a treaty to preserve some special area of your life? You need to repent. The rest of us are losing our lives. Have you been giving up and throwing in the towel because it's just too hard? You need to repent. The rest of us are going at this as long as it takes. The altar tonight is the place to begin to square these actions. As you evaluate your status with God, in the last month, 
Do you know how he views your performance? It's a good question. Not your friends, not your peers, not your mother, not your lost family. How does he view your performance over this last month? Do you know if you won or lost over the last two weeks? If this is a war, how are you doing? Are you losing ground? Are you gaining it? Are you driving your enemy back? Or is he beating you into a corner? How about over the last couple days? Sit between now and Sunday. We've got a Monday, we've got a Tuesday, had some holiday breaks. What about over the last two hours of your Wednesday and midweek? Was it victorious? Or were you dragging in just trying to not make a scene on the way out of work? Mm. Do you know what caused your failure? If you have lost battles, and I know you have over the course of a month, do you know what caused it? Or did you brush over it and leave it behind and say it's just under the blood? Mm. Most importantly, have you taken concrete steps to remedy that failure? I tell you, I, if I get hit in the face, I'm going to figure out whatever I need to do to make sure that does not happen again. Amen. How are you treating sin? Are you working to do whatever it takes to remedy the situation? I think that's worth contemplating for a minute. If you got hit in the face, you would figure out how to not let that happen again. If you failed spiritually, it's like getting hit in the face. Over this month of offensive messages, have you figured out what you're going to do different so that not only do you not get hit in the face, but you're able to damage your enemy? You ought to be able to write them down. It's easy to just sit in a church and be entertained. See, as a pastor, I know that you listen well. You even learn well. But in warfare, that's only useful as it translates to action. Doctrine that doesn't work itself out practically is practically worthless. So in the last seconds that we have here this evening, in one of the last messages of the year, it's worth asking you, what's different in your daily habits now that you've heard these eight messages over a month? If you compare life today with life two months ago, can you honestly say something is different or did we waste our preaching on you? Let's review it for a second. Did you let your sword drop? Did you run to a doctor when you should have run to the throne of God and the Word of God? Have you forgotten your spiritual station? And your marriage has been one long defensive struggle. Just trying not to make the other one angry. See, when you don't know who you are, you'll never know how to act. Have you been so lax and overcome with apathy that when I talk about taking captives from the fierce it might as well be a bumper sticker because it doesn't describe you. See, it's easy to be entertained by a thing and never have applied it. Has your lack of faith in God's right hand caused you to settle for survival when you were called to be in spiritual supremacy? Saints, you are the apex predator in the spiritual realm if you know who you are and you're properly armed. 
There is no devil that can overcome you. There is nothing in all of the heavens that is a match for Messiah, and you are in Messiah. So then why do we lose? Because we dropped our sword. Why do we lose? Because we forgot who we are. Why do we lose? Because we got off mission. We're not going behind enemy lines to free people. We're stuck pleasing ourselves. Why do we lose? Because we forget that it's the right hand of God that delivers us victories. Maybe tonight you need to pick up your sword. Maybe tonight you need to regain your heavenly station. Maybe tonight you have to pick back up your mission. You have a mezuzah statement on your wall, but it is in your heart to the place that you're doing it daily, or is it just an ornament on your wall? You might have to regain a biblical view of God's right hand. He accomplishes through you what you cannot accomplish on your own. He is the majesty and power of God. And you are in Him. Would you stand to your feet tonight?